Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. I don't know about you, but I've never been a big superhero fan. I never read comic books growing up like a lot of kids did. I have watched a few movies through the years, and those movies never seem to stop. There is an endless supply of superhero movies that come out over and over again, whether it's Batman or Superman or Spider-Man or countless other superheroes, they are endless, and I'm not opposed to them. It's really just not my taste in movies. But the premise is pretty much always the same. There is a hero who has some kind of power that is beyond ordinary humans, and there is, of course, a villain, someone who also has powers but intends to use those powers in a vastly different way than our superhero does. And so there is this struggle, a struggle between good and evil. And in the movies, at least, we know that in the end, good is going to prevail. Our hero needs to save someone, or sometimes everyone, because it's a worldwide thing. And there is this villain that he has got to fight. And over the course of the movie, there are countless scenes where they do battle one with another. And... Our hero almost dies multiple times, but in the end, of course, he is victorious, but never completely, because you've got to, you, you got to leave room for that sequel, right? So right at the end of the movie, there's some small piece of information that tells us our villain just might be back in the future. But people who are in peril people who are in need of deliverance, or the battle between good and evil is not new, nor was it invented by Hollywood. It is as old as mankind himself, even if the costumes costumes and the specific powers are different. We may not find the same graphics or sound effects when we read the struggles in the Bible, but the heart of the issues are still the same. When we gathered last week, we were in the last few verses of the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, a passage that told us about the death of Joseph. And you remember that it highlighted what Joseph said on his deathbed, and that is he was still believing in the promise of God, so much so that he told his family, God is going to come and God is going to deliver you from Egypt, and when he does, I want you to bring my bones with you. Well, this morning, if you've looked in the bulletin, you know we are in Exodus chapter 3. So we've only turned maybe two pages in our Bible. But those two or three pages that we've turned from the end of Genesis to Exodus chapter 3 represent 360 years of history. We know that the Israelites were in Egypt for 430 years. They started out as invited guests of Pharaoh, but somewhere along the way, they transitioned into servants or slaves. We know that Joseph lived 70 years after his family came down to Egypt. In Exodus chapter 2, we are told about the birth of Moses. 
which was 280 years after Joseph's death. And then in chapter 3, when Moses is at the age of 80, and we know this because Exodus chapter 7 tells us that he was 80 years old when he went and appeared before Pharaoh. All of that to say that there's been a long time, a very long time, hundreds and hundreds of years since God first gave that promise to Abraham. That promise that we looked at at the beginning of this series where we talked about the faithfulness of God. That when God gives a promise, God is going to finalize or finish that promise. And yet, hundreds of years have gone by and the promise has not been fulfilled. And worse yet, the Israelites are servants in a foreign land. Last week, we talked about God's providence in the life of Joseph. But after more than hundreds of years have passed, I think it's fair to ask the question, is God really working? Has God forgotten about his people in exile? You can certainly not blame them for wondering about that when the people who are going to be delivered have lived their whole lives in bondage, hearing about the promise, but as yet never seeing the fulfillment. There is no hint that God is acting on their behalf, but all of that is about to change. This morning, we're looking at God's deliverance from Exodus chapter 3. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who were in Egypt. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey, to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, 
the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Once again, we might want to go back to our Sunday school lessons as children, more distant for some of you than others, but go back to that time when we talked about these Old Testament characters in Sunday school and think what, what moment in the life of Joseph would we most likely pick? Well, we certainly love his birth narrative, right? Where the king has said that all the male boys were to be killed, but Moses' mother puts him in a basket and sails him down the river. We love that story. We could talk about the encounters with Pharaoh and the 10 plagues, certainly a, a period of time in Moses' life where he was able to exhibit superhero powers before Pharaoh. We could talk about the encounter with God on the mountain where Moses went up there for 40 days and received the 10 commandments. That was certainly a powerful encounter with God. We could examine the crossing of the sea on dry land and then the years of leading a stubborn people in the desert. So even like Joseph, there is a lot in the life of Moses that we could have selected in order to study this morning. But I have picked this one because it is not just an individual encounter. This is not just about Moses meeting with God. This is God meeting with Moses on behalf of the entire people of Israel. We're going to see that God is going to use Moses to deliver his children from these years of slavery. And then after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, God is going to plant them in the land. Though, of course, if you know the story, Mo Moses is not going to be around to experience that. But we need to slow down just a moment. Go back to the beginning. And the first thing we want to talk about is the preparation for deliverance. God is going to use Moses, but Moses is going to need some preparation before he is ready to assume this prominent role. Moses' life, according to the Bible, I'm not making this up, but according to the Bible, Moses' life can be divided up into three segments of 40 years each. The first of those 40-year segments is spent in the home of Pharaoh's daughter. She is the one who has saved him from the river and even called his mother, though of course she didn't know that it was his mother, but she calls his mother to help her raise this Hebrew baby. Talk about God's providence. Not only saving Moses against the king's command, but saving him while at the same time allowing his mother to take a prominent role in his raising and then placing him in the perfect environment during these formative years to learn wisdom. Moses would have been given the, the best of environments, the best education, the best examples. Not, not from a spiritual standpoint, I'm sure his mother instilled that part into him, but from a secular standpoint, he had everything that the world had to offer at that time. He would have gone to the best schools while living in luxury. He would have had anything and everything he wanted, all of it available to him whenever he needed or wanted it. The greatest minds in Egypt would have been his teachers, and he would have had access to the who's who in ancient Egypt. And God was using all of these to prepare Moses for the day when he would lead the people out of Egypt and around the wilderness. But at the same time, Moses did not forget his heritage. He knew, again, I'm sure his mother taught him this. 
He knew that he was a Hebrew, not an Egyptian. So one day he comes across a Hebrew and an Egyptian fighting and he steps in and kills the Egyptian as part of the conflict. And then the days after that, when he sees others fighting, he, he starts to step in again and he's confronted and he knows now that the story of him killing and hiding the body of this Egyptian is out and fearing that Pharaoh will find out about this, he flees and he winds up in Midian. Midian is the place where the descendants of Abraham through one of his servants are living. And the second segment of Moses' life, that second segment from the age of 40 to 80 is spent in the deserts of Midian, tending the flock or shepherding. That's a long way to fall, isn't it? From royalty, living in the home of Pharaoh, to now shepherding sheep in the desert. Is God still in control? Is God only in his providence during times of prominence? Well, we saw last week that that was not true. It was not true in the life of Joseph and it's not going to be true in the life of Moses. But 40 years is a long time to live in the desert. We don't mind visiting the desert from time to time, but most of us don't want to live there. But it's important to remember that all of this time has transpired as we start chapter 3 because it's not just a few days. It's not just a few years. Moses didn't flee to Midian and then a few weeks later gets the call from God to go back to Egypt and lead the people out. There was four decades of presumed silence from God because we know nothing about this time period as far as God speaking to Moses. Forty years of presumed silence from God, with Moses wondering if God had forgotten him. Was God no longer working with him? But what we're going to see is even as Moses needed to learn wisdom in Egypt, which he did, he also needed to learn humility in the desert. I think humility is the harder one to learn sometimes, because humility often comes through trials. When Moses is about to leave this earth and the people are going to enter the promised land, he talks to them and he tells them that the 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. Now, I'm not talking about Moses' 40 years in Midian now. I'm talking about the 40 years in the wilderness of leading the people of Israel. He tells them specifically that God had allowed that because they needed to be humbled to see if they would be obedient. And Moses knows that from experience because he had spent 40 years in Midian. I told you a few months ago that I read a book by Bill Haslam that somebody gave me, Haslam being the former governor of Tennessee and the former mayor of Knoxville. And so here's another story from that book while he was governor. So as governor, he was flying from Nashville to California for some sort of event. And he was flying Southwest Airlines. And if you know anything about Southwest Airlines, you know that they don't assign seats. You get to pick your seats based on your boarding number. So whoever gets to go on first gets to pick their seat. Well, as governor of our state, guess who's number one on the boarding number? So Haslam gets to board the plane first and pick any seat he wants. But then the second passenger comes on and it's a, it's a lady. And she knows who Bill Haslam is. And so guess which seat she picks? the one right next to him. She reminds him that this is a four-hour flight. 
and how excited she is to be sitting by the governor of our state for the next four hours. She asks if she can take a selfie with him, and he allows it. He said, would you, would you mind if I called my husband? He will not believe that I'm sitting next to you for the next four hours. And he said, sure, call your husband. She then says, could we FaceTime my office? They will be blown away by the fact that I'm sitting next to you on this plane. And again, he was very gracious and allowed her to FaceTime her office and he spoke to her coworkers. But about the time they finished the FaceTime conversation, there was a chatter, there was a buzz on the plane because obviously as they've been doing all of this, the plane has been filling up with other passengers. So Haslam looks up and he says, you can, you can see people standing up and their phones around and they're taking pictures. And that's when he notices the four lead singers of the award-winning country music group, Little Big Town, making their way onto the plane and picking their seats. And the lady that has been sitting next to him then says, dang, now I don't feel like I got a good seat at all. Life, or should I say God, has a way of humbling us. And that's exactly what he's doing with Moses in those wasted years as a shepherd. And I use the word wasted in a, in a quotation mark. Because while he might have felt like they were wasted, we know that they were not wasted. That God was using all of that to prepare him for what the future held. And I want you to understand that no time is wasted in God's economy. Whatever you're going through, maybe you're in a desert in your life. Not physically, as far as literally being in a desert, but spiritually or emotionally, you feel like you are in the desert and maybe you have been there for a long time. I want you to understand that God is working. He is not wasting this time. So don't lose sight of the fact that God might be preparing you for something. I'm not saying you're gonna deliver a people group, but God has a plan, and God is working that plan for your good and for his glory. So do not rebel in the midst of the desert. Learn from it. The second thing I want us to notice is the concern that leads to deliverance. Whether it was the, the people in Egypt or Moses in the deserts of Midian or you in the midst of your times of struggle, we have a tendency to think that God has forgotten us when we cannot hear from him and when we do not see his hand working. It is during those times when we wonder if he loves us at all. In spite of what the Bible says, and, and we know what the Bible says on this topic, but in spite of that, we tend to wonder and doubt, allowing our circumstances to dictate our beliefs. Rather than our theology drive our understanding, we allow our circumstances to do that. So how do we know that God cared about his people? How do we know that even in those hundreds of years when, when seemingly he was not acting, he did see and he did know and he did care? We know that because he says so. Look at verse 7. I have surely seen the affliction of of my people. And remember last week we talked about seeing in the in respect of God not just being a visual thing, but seeing in the sense that he is going to act. So he says, I've seen the affliction. Look at the end of verse 7. I know their sufferings. If that's not enough, if you've got your Bibles open, look back at chapter, the end of chapter 2. 
Verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and he heard their groanings and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. It's comforting to know that someone knows what we're going through even when they can't do anything about it. That's why when, when we go through something, it's encouraging to be able to talk to someone who has gone through that before. Not only because they can empathize with us, but because we get a picture of someone who has endured what we're enduring and they've come out the other end successfully. There's just something about knowing that you are not alone, which again is why the church is so important. Because we have fellow believers who have walked through something before we do. But as I've said, sometimes the people who walk through those things, they can't solve our problems. They can be a shoulder to cry on. They can be someone who will listen to us, but they can't necessarily always solve our problems. But God is and can do that. God is one who knows. God is one who cares. And God is one who has the power to deliver you from whatever circumstances you're facing. Now, let me be quick to add, I'm not giving you a promise that he will do that. I do not believe that God has promised to deliver you from every circumstance. Remember, even in Egypt, there were generations that were born and died there, never having fulfilled or seen the fulfillment of the promise. So I'm not promising that God will deliver you. What I am trying to say at this point is that God has not forgotten you even as he had not forgotten the children of Israel in Egypt. And I realize that's hard to believe sometimes, and doubt is quick to slip into our minds and steal our faith, but the testimony of the Bible is that God sees, God cares, and God knows. And while that may not mean an end to your sufferings, it should at least be some comfort to know that God does know and cares. As you lie awake at night wondering when your wayward child is going to come home. As you wrestle with that recent diagnosis that the doctor has just given you. As you struggle through that financial setback, remember that God knows and God cares what you are going through. As you cry out in prayer yet again, wondering if anyone is listening, be reminded from this story that God does hear and God does care. Remember that even as Moses was encountering God in this setting, there were people in Egypt that had no idea that this was going on. They lived their lives day after day, not knowing that God was working through a man in Midian and about to bring him back to Egypt to deliver them from their slavery. They had no idea of that. And you might have no idea that God is working in your life right now preparing you for something in your future. Again, I'm not promising something amazing or tremendous, but I am saying that God does know and God has a plan in your life. That providence we talked about last week is still working in your life for your good and God's glory. So now we get to the heart of this passage. We look at the encounter before deliverance. As we look back at this encounter between God and Moses, I remind you that it started just like every other day. Moses, too, had no idea that this was going to happen that day. 
He got up early as he always did. He drank a cup of coffee as he watched the sunrise. I'm making that part up. And he went out to tend the sheep, just like he had done for four decades, thinking nothing was going to be different on this particular day. I certainly don't know much about shepherding, but I suppose it leaves you with a lot of time on your hands. I'm not saying it's not a hard job. I'm just saying I, I think there's a lot of time to think while you're looking at sheep. Perhaps that's why David had so much time to write poetry and sing. I wonder how many of those mornings he regretted that quick action back in Egypt. How many mornings Moses looked back and thought, if I just hadn't killed that Egyptian, God would have used me in tremendous ways. But now God has forgotten about me. My life is over, at least as far as accomplishing anything great for God. Time had passed him by and his usefulness for God had been exhausted. He's 80 years old now. Now, granted, that's at a time when, when they lived a little longer than we live now, but 80 years old is still a lot of years passed by. Regret has a way of keeping us chained to the past and paralyzed in the present and certainly has a way of making us doubt our future. I don't know exactly what Moses was thinking, but I know that he didn't expect to see what happened on this particular day. He noticed that a bush was on fire, not an uncommon sight in that in that environment. It's hot, it's dry, bushes burned. But that's just it. When they caught on fire, they burned and they burned quickly. And they became a pile of ash. But the significant thing here is this bush is on fire, but it is not being consumed. And so Moses says, I need to go see what this is all about. Giving God an opportunity for this unique encounter to prepare him for the, the deliverance, to be his tool for delivering. Fire is a sign of the presence of God. We talked about that week one. You remember the covenant ceremony with Abraham? The animal pieces are cut in half, but Abraham doesn't walk through there. There's just a, a fire that goes through there, representing the presence of God, ratifying that covenant. And here we see fire again, representing the presence of God. Of course, the most famous aspect of this story is the statement from God, the initial words <clears throat> instructing Moses to take off his shoes because he's on holy ground. I grew up in a home where we had to take off our shoes when we got in the home. I hated that. There was always a line of shoes outside the garage door because we had to take them off before we came in the house. And I hated it so much, I don't do it. We, I freely walk in my house with my shoes on. I understand the principle behind it. That is, uh, shoes carry dirt. And so to cut down on the dirt and stuff in the house, you take your shoes off. I was reminded of this custom when Tracy and I went to see our missionary partners this past summer. When we got there, we stayed in their apartment for the first three or four days, and we were immediately told. Our custom here is that we take our shoes off when we come into the house. And therefore, that's going to be your custom over the next three or four days. I forgot several times and had to be reminded, but of course, I did what they asked me to do. But Moses wasn't taking off his shoes so that he wouldn't track in dirt. He's already outside. So why is he told this? It's a sign of reverence and respect. In this case, because he's in the presence of God. Something else we learned when we were in Central Asia. We visited several mosques. And they are very serious about the fact that you did not walk into a mosque with your shoes on. You took your shoes off before you entered. And they often had cubby holes like you might find in a daycare for you to, for you to put your shoes in. And you could go into the mosque. But they had someone standing there watching 
And they would remind you if you tried to walk in there. Because in their opinion, that's a holy place and you did not walk in there with shoes on. Now, I'm not saying that we're about to start requiring you to leave your shoes at the door as you come into the church. But I am saying that there's a lesson we can learn here. That perhaps sometimes we're too casual or informal when it comes to God. And we need to acknowledge sometimes His holiness. Everything is more casual in our culture, and I'm afraid that includes our approach to God. Moses is then given instructions about what God was going to do, and I do want you to see that it is God doing the action. He is going to send Moses to Pharaoh. He is going to deliver the people. Over and over again, you see first-person singular pronouns here while God is speaking. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I say is going to happen. He's not in a dialogue with Moses. He is telling Moses what he is going to do. And so we often talk about Moses being the deliverer, but that is not what I titled my sermon. And I did so for a reason, because Moses is not the deliverer. God is. Moses is a tool in the hand of God, but God is the one who is delivering his people. Thus throughout, there are instructions. God telling Moses what he is going to do, and suddenly then Moses doesn't feel up to the task. He had tried to take matters into his own hand 40 years earlier by stepping in between that fight between the Hebrew and the Egyptian, and that hadn't worked out too well. But now he's an aging shepherd. And he says, what's a, what's a four-decade-old shepherd supposed to tell Pharaoh that will lead him to allow all of these Israelites to go free? Well, that leads me to my last point, the intimacy in deliverance. I mentioned a moment ago that perhaps we're too familiar with God. I did not mean to imply that, that we can be too close to God. That, that was not my point. I'm simply saying we're sometimes too casual. But we certainly can know God and be close to God. For while God is holy and separate from sin, he has welcomed us into his presence through Christ. So I am not now contradicting what I said a moment ago by saying intimacy with God is important in deliverance. Because that's exactly what we see here in Moses. Notice God's answer to Moses' first obje objection. Moses says, who am I? that I should do this. And God says, and I'm paraphrasing, Moses, it really doesn't matter who you are. It's who I am that makes a difference. Because who I am makes up for any deficiency as far as who you are. So the point is not who you are to go to Pharaoh. The point is, I'm going with you. The point is God's presence with Moses. And then when Moses wonders who is sending him, we have, this, we have this famous answer from God. When Moses says, well, who is it that is sending me? What should I tell him? And God says, tell him I am has sent you. We mentioned a few weeks ago that Jesus in John chapter 8 takes that name unto himself. A passage that I believe is the clearest statement of, Je of deity from Jesus. And in that situation, the crowd who heard him say that knew exactly what, they, what he meant because they intended to pick up stones to stone him because they perceived that he had spoken blasphemous. 
The point for us to remember is at the moment, Moses is not going alone. He will have powers, superpowers, to convince Pharaoh. That's what those 10 plagues are about. But the most important thing is that God is with him. You and I may not have superpowers, but we do know that same promise. Because the Bible tells us God will never leave us nor forsake us. That God is always with us. And he's promised to do just that. Another comforting and encouraging truth from God's word. Now in closing, I want, to, I want you to see perhaps the most important element of this sermon. I mean, it's one thing to go back and look at this text and see that God is going to use Moses to deliver his people from Egypt. It is a step further to go from that and say that I know God is a God who can deliver and God may choose to deliver me from whatever it is I'm going through and yet he's not necessarily promised that. But I want to go an even step further than that and show you that everything we've talked about this morning, if you are a believer, is indeed true in your life. First, God has prepared a deliverer. And his name is not Moses. Moses is a type of Christ, a foreshadowing of the greater deliverance to come. God prepared a deliverer for you, and his name is Jesus. And that preparation meant that he came to this earth in the form of a man, that he lived a, a sinless life and died a substitutionary death and rose victoriously, all of that in preparation to deliver you. I was in a pastor's meeting this past week and we briefly talked about how easy it is to recount those facts of what Christ did and how often we do that and yet how seldom perhaps we stand in awe at all that was accomplished through that. It's easy to restate the facts, but we need to see the glory in what took place there. Secondly, there was concern leading to deliverance. Even as God saw the Israelites in their suffering, he saw yours. And at this point, I'm not talking about your physical sufferings. We, we've already seen that God may or may not deliver you from physical suffering in this life. I'm talking about how God saw you in your sin. And the weight of that sin crushing you with no hope nor possibility of you or I getting out from under it. He saw your need for a Savior and that you could not redeem yourself. And therefore, then thirdly, there was an encounter before deliverance. Again, I'm not talking about your own personal burning bush miracle. But I am talking about God revealing himself to you. God drawing you to him through his spirit. And giving you the gift of salvation. None of that happens without a divine encounter with God. may not be as dramatic as Paul on the Damascus Road, but it's an encounter nevertheless. And then finally, there is intimacy in deliverance, meaning that after salvation, we know God and He knows us. He knows our name, Scripture says, and we sometimes sing, and everything else about us. So that we now have a relationship with Him through His Son, that is the one thing that sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Because it is indeed, at its heart, an intimate relationship with God. The very God who created us and is now remaking us in the image of His Son. 
So while there is no promise that God will deliver you from every trial or every circumstance, we have been delivered from our greatest need. And since that is true, we can trust when God says, He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Meaning that if God delivered you from your greatest need, God will meet every other need you have as well. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the deliverance we have in Christ. While sometimes we do cry out in our prayers asking you to deliver us from some circumstance we're going through, and we have every right to do that through Christ. We are reminded this morning that you have delivered us from our greatest need. You have prepared a deliverer in Christ to bear our sin debt, satisfying your wrath, so that we might by faith be reconciled to you. I pray we would rejoice in that. So that no matter what else you may or may not do in our lives, we can say God is a God who delivers because he delivered me from my sin. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.